It's been a few months since my last episode. I took a longer than planned for break, but I'm back and raring to go. This episode's a good one. I'm Will Stewart, and you're listening to A Cook's Library. Letitia Clark is a chef living in Sardinia, and the author of the two fantastic books, Bitter Honey, and the newly published La Vita e Dolce, all about Italian desserts. For our chat, Letitia wanted to speak about her favorite book, Honey from a Weed by Patience Gray. But first, why she started cooking. Well, so I think the, the kind of major influence um, in my cooking life, or my life in food, um, was definitely my grandmother on my mum's side, who was a self-trained cook. Um, and she, she had this incredibly kind of romantic and wonderful love story with my grandfather they met very young they were sort of childhood sweethearts fell madly in love um went off and lived in sort of relative poverty in a tiny cottage rented cottage while he was training to be an engineer um and she just had to learn how to cook on a very small budget um she'd never cooked before um at home her mother was very undomestic and um had no interest in cooking or anything so my grandma sort of started from nothing and she taught herself how to make very kind of simple um, economical dishes, you know, more than anything, um, you know, using things that have now become incredibly sort of a la mode, things like offal, obviously, and cuts of meat that were incredibly cheap, like lamb, belly, pork belly, you know, neck, all that kind of stuff. Um, and she then moved, they started off living in Northumberland and they then moved to Wiltshire so um, she got quite into kind of Wiltshire food traditions and Wiltshire has a really fascinating food um, kind of history. And I grew up going to visit her there and she would cook amazing things with pork and pig because Wiltshire has a really great kind of pig rearing tradition. And she always used a lot of lard, which I loved. We used to have lardy cake every Friday, which she would warm up in her agar and then we would eat it with extra butter. <laughs> which is so delicious and no one makes it anymore which is well actually I think Flora have started have coined re- reintroduced lardy cake but they do it round and she used to buy these massive rectangular slabs which were so much better I love them um and so the, like things like that lardy cake she was a big mm. she used to serve bath chaps which I think St John then kind of took on as well which were like it's just like a pig's tongue rolled inside a, a cheek and then like um, turned into a sort of ham yeah. that you slice so we always had things like bath chaps and we would have um what else did she used to make amazing things she she used to make roast ham a lot that was her kind of sunday speciality like a proper roast ham and she always served it with tinned peaches and i absolutely loved it and she used to make this gravy with some of the syrup from from the peach tin so it was like slightly sweet which obviously goes so well with the kind of salty ham um and mm. She was just a, a brilliant and inventive cook, um, and she loved food. She loved to eat. She loved to give people pleasure through food, and I think she was a massive influence on me. Um, and she actually, it was really interesting because the way that I got into food, the way that I got into cooking of being a chef was that she lived in the same village as Fergus Henson's parents, and she was quite good friends with them, and she used to invite them over for dinner. And I met them once and they were telling me about Fergus and they told me about this restaurant, St. John. And, and I went and did a day's work experience in St. John. And I decided on the back of that that I wanted to be a chef, basically. So. Wow, what an amazing connection. 
Yeah, it was it was really it was crazy. And we used to go the first job I ever did. So I, I graduated from uni. I studied English literature, and then I graduated. And I went to live with my grandma because we were really close, um, obviously, and and she was on her own by then. My grandpa had died, so I went to live with her once I graduated, and I got a job in the local pub, which was called the Swan. And the, the head chef was he was really good. Um, he'd like trained in France. He was pretty serious. I mean, it was pub food, but we used to do his his. His signature dish was deviled kidneys and deviled kidneys on wholemeal toast. And Fergus Henson's dad used to come in and eat kidneys on toast every Sunday lunch. And I would chat to him and I learned how to make the, the deviled kidneys on toast. And I, it was just like, it was a really interesting food environment that kind of bred in me this like love of that kind of cooking. And it was, yeah, it was a really an amazing kind of introduction into the, into the food world. Sardinia is not known for its Wi-Fi, so to fill in the gap, Letitia worked in lots of great restaurants in London, like Spring, The Dock Kitchen, Morrow, and Ellery, now Leroy, but she left it all behind and decided to move to Italy. So I'm coming up to my four-year anniversary. It's funny because I think, like, this last year, there's been a real shift, um, and I don't know if it's, like, anyone that moves away would say, you know, the third and fourth year, that's when things change a bit. Or, you know, if it's just me or if it's just what's happening you know, after COVID or whatever's happened. But I was definitely still unsure because obviously Luca and I broke up. And then, you know, the link, my main link to Sardinia was always Luca, obviously. I mean, I wouldn't have come here otherwise. Um, and, you know, as much as I love it, it's, it's very lonely, you know, without family nearby. And during COVID, obviously, I've been incredibly cut off. So um, this year, for some reason, something seems to have shifted, like during, you know, like, after COVID, you know, the worst of COVID has, has kind of passed, we hope. Um, something shifted and it's weird. Like I, I wrote a piece about it on my blog the other day, actually, like just how the, you know, recently it feels much more like home and much less like somewhere I've moved to or somewhere I'm living. And England feels much less like home. And it's it's funny how that shift sort of happens. Um, That's nice though. It's probably a nice, it's probably a nice feeling to have, you know, after a certain amount of time somewhere it's really nice and it's weird because the language as well you know like language is such a big part of it and um you know I teach English here and and obviously I'm learning Italian all the time so um la the language has become massive and obviously because I love words and, and literature and you know um writing etc like words are a big part of my life language is a big part of my life and um I think now you know even talking to you now like I'm translating from Italian in my head into English and like yeah. that cliche that you start to dream in the other language and like you know when you when you stub your toe or like you hurt yourself your, your first initial response is like in that language and that's yeah that's really cats. happened this, yeah exactly <laughs> always cats <laughs> so many cats or and like yeah it's just it's, it's been really weird, like, how this year it's, it's just suddenly really changed. And although I would never say, like, I would never say, oh, I'm Italian, I'm Sardinian, I feel Sardinian. Like, it's not like that, but I definitely, it feels really like home now. And that's really nice, yeah. So your book, Bitter Honey, was it, were you planning on writing it before you went to Sardinia? Or did you get there and then sort of everything came from that? Well, so, I mean, I've always wanted to write about food, but I was like, I want to be a good cook before I write about food because I really want to know, like, the practice as well as, you know, the theory kind of thing. 
Um, and then obviously I thought, well, I'll just write, you know, alongside working in restaurants. But you, as you know, when you work in a restaurant, basically you have no time to do anything else. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I never did any writing. Really. So I knew that once we got to Sardinia, life was going to be a bit easier because I wasn't going to be a full time chef anymore. So I thought you know, it's a good chance to finally start writing properly. And, you know, at the beginning, we lived with Luca's family. So, like, you know, we were living very, like, simply and relatively easily in a way um, because we didn't have any expenses or whatever. You know, we were, like, eating with them every day, living in their house. So it was really the first opportunity that I had to, like, properly start writing and seeing if I could I could do it. It just, like, everything slowly unraveled as you were there, kind of what, what to well, write about, where to begin. Well, I think... You know, Luca, Luca was a massive part of the book, is a massive part of the book, um, and obviously a massive part of, like, why I'm here. And he, you know, when I started saying to him, like, I want to write, and I think it'd be good to write about Sardinia, like, Luca's incredibly proud of Sardinia. Like, that's one of the lovely things about mm. it. Um, and he's incredibly connected to Sardinian food, you know, like, all of his family work, and, and you know, his dad grows rice, um, his brother farms, like they raise their own animals, they make their own meat, you know, they make their own salamis, like they're really, you know, they're really, they're very, very connected to, to food and they're very passionate about food. And I had, you know, I was incredibly lucky and, and really privileged to like experience that and to eat their food. And, and the mom is a great cook and she, you know, she was talking to me about the food and I was eating her food and the grandma that I became very close to Nonna Julia, who appears in the book a bit as well. You know, she would always talk to me about how she made her, her sugo and like, um, and it just kind of, all of the recipes sort of came together through them, through Luca, through, he encouraged me. He was incredibly like supportive the whole way through. And was like, you know, no one writes about Sardinian food. No one even knows about Sardinian food. No one cares about it. You need to like, you need to, you know, it's, it's a great thing that you can, you can tell England or the world or whatever about yeah. it um so yeah I think you know I had an, I was amazingly lucky to have that kind of familial encouragement and also that insight into the way that they cook and, and the way that they ate um and it all kind of started started from there and I mean the recipes it is a bit of a mix it's not a traditional Sardinian cookbook and I, and I tried to be really clear in, in the introduction to say that um, you know, in the preface to say, like, this is not a collection of 100% authentic Sardinian recipes because there are a lot of others that I didn't include that are very delicious, but, you know, like, some of them are so incredibly specific to Sardinia that it's almost impossible to recreate them and outside of Sardinia. And I wanted to get a balance of, like, recipes that are cookable, you know, outside of Sardinia, and also some recipes that are so traditional that you couldn't leave them out. So, you know, something like the Siada, the... The little pastry that has the the melted cheese inside that you eat with honey like the the cheese that goes in that is you can only buy it in sardinia so it's like it's you know it's, it's such a difficult thing choosing recipes because i want people to cook from the book i want you know i want someone in a, in a new york apartment to be able to cook the recipes but i also don't want to betray you know betray sardinia by not including incredibly traditional sardinian recipes so it was really hard. It, it is really hard. And I get a lot of criticism all the time. And people like people have complained so much. Like people, oh, it's not traditional enough, or it's too traditional, or I can't find Batarga. From Sardinians. Well, everybody. Like, oh my God. You know, like I can't find <laughs> Batarga. You know, why have you got four Batarga recipes in there? And I can't even get Batarga. And I mean, it's just, <laughs> you can't please everyone, but you can never please everyone. Yeah. 
Um, and there are always going to be gaps and holes and, you know, like things that definitely are difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult to make a, a really extensive selection that, that covers everything. But, you know, it's it's something to work to, towards, <laughs> I guess. It's always a challenge. Yeah. I mean, Italian food is complicated, isn't it? Because it has so many layers and a lot of people feel that they have an understanding of Italian food, whether it's, you know, someone who lives in Sardinia and eats it every single day yeah. or someone who's grown up eating Italian food somewhere. Yeah. Everyone has a preconception and everyone thinks they understand it. You know, you understand pasta, you understand whatever. Uh, and it's very opinionated, especially yeah. Southern oh Italians. Wow. <laughs> very opinionated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this, 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 this kind of regionality, which I think I'd sort of, I'd sort of been aware of, you know, working with Italians, knowing Italians, reading about Italian food, cooking Italian food. But I hadn't really experienced it, obviously, until I came here. And then I, I realized, like, how fierce this kind of, like, protection of regional specialities is and how how fired up people get yeah. about it. Like, and, you know, the traditional recipe, you know, a real carbonara has to be made with this and a real amatriciana has to be made like this. And... And there is, and I think that's a wonderful thing, you know, like mostly it's a really wonderful thing and it and it's to be celebrated and preserved and, and encouraged. But there's also, it, there's definitely a downside that I think it can be quite intimidating for people. Mm. I had a, I had a student that when I was um, a student at my school where I teach English and he said, like his grandma used to make this ravioli, this like Sardinian ravioli, which is, is kind of, this is like, um, so in Sardinian they obviously don't make egg pasta most of the time. It's just a simple similar and water dough. Um, and then obviously right. ricotta, quite often they put saffron in the ricotta and stuff. So it was a kind of simple, like a ricotta saffron ravioli recipe, but it was really good. Mm. He said it was the best ravioli in the whole of the area or whatever. And his grandma, you know, this is his own grandmother. And he asked, <laughs> and he asked her for the recipe and she said she wasn't going to give it to him, but like never, like she was never going <laughs> to give him this recipe. And then he said he went to see her in hospital, like as she was dying. And like literally the, like a couple of days before she died, she was like, come here. <laughs> she was like, now I'm going to give you the ravioli recipe. <laughs> literally on her deathbed, that was the only moment she was willing to share this, like her perfect ravioli recipe. But yeah, I mean, food here, it's pretty serious. It's pretty serious. You're not even going to tell your own grandson your recipe because it's God, that's that hysterical. Sacred. So where did you, you know, you want to talk about Patience Grey, don't you? Honey from a weed. Yes, yes, I do. Um, when were you when were you given when were you given the book or when did you first read the book? So I um I worked obviously because I'm from Devon um, and every, every time I quit a London cooking job I would basically go back to Devon and try and find a job in Devon so that I could maybe think I could live in Devon you know long term because I never I never like I've never been a city person I never wanted to stay in London so I was always trying to find a way of of moving back and I found and I I was working in London and I found this book I was actually working in a bookshop this was just after I um, graduated from my master's and then I worked in a bookshop for a bit before I went back into the kitchen so I was working in a bookshop um, and I found this book in the bookshop called Honey from a Weed and I just picked it up because I love the illustration on the cover, which you can see. I mean, we're not recording this on videos, so, but you know, like, I'll show it anyway. Um, I really love the illustration and obviously the title, which was very appealing. Um, so I picked it up and I started flicking through it. And obviously, if you work in a bookshop, all you do is read, basically, because no one ever comes into the bookshop. So I was, I was reading this, I was reading this book, and I thought, this is 
an extraordinary, extraordinary book. Like it's it's a recipe book, but it's not. It's a it's an autobiography. It's a kind of like academic study of all kinds of different things. It's got these beautiful pen and ink illustrations. Obviously, I, I draw. I love like ink illustrations. Um, and it was just extraordinary. So I thought, I, lo I looked at the back and I thought, who published this book? Because I was interested in kind of publishing as well. Um, and I found Prospect Books, which is in Totnes in Devon. Um, and I sent an email to Tom Jane, who is the owner of Prospect Books, or was, he's now sold it. Um, and I sent him an email. I said, hello, I'm a food enthusiast and cook and uh, av you know, avid reader of food-related books, and I've just found Honey from the Weed, and I would like to come and work from you because I'm work for you because I'm also from Devon, um, and this book has changed my life. <laughs> this is like two hours later. <laughs> yeah, I was I was really like blown away. And at that point, a first customer walks past the window and then doesn't come in and then walks <laughs> off, so you can keep sending the email. <laughs> exactly, it's like this crazy woman in the corner absorbed in Honey from the Weed. Um, I did have, yeah, I had a couple of regulars. I had a couple of regular customers, but mostly they just came to hang out because I think they were lonely, which was sad. But um, anyway. <laughs> anyway, so I sent Tom Jane an email and he replied almost instantly uh, with a, a hilarious email, which one day I will maybe publish or something because it was very funny and very eccentric. Um, and he said, of course, I can't afford to have a real uh, person working for me because I don't make any money, but you're welcome to come. <laughs> And I, maybe I can give you, a, you know, you can stay with us um, and we, we can read books. We can organize my library. We can talk about Honey from a Weed. You can send emails. And I'm actually re, um, I'm actually revising the Oxford Companion to Food because Tom Jane did the, is the editor of the Oxford Companion to Food. The, I mean, the original was by Alan Davidson. I don't know if you if you have it or, or know it, but the original was written, written and compiled by Alan Davidson, who had Prospect Books before Tom Jane. Tom Jane inherited Prospect Books from, from Alan Davidson and also inherited the job of editing The Oxford Companion to Food. So he was doing the second edition. So anyway, he was like, yeah, sure, come down. So I went down and I spent a very funny summer living back at home with my dad in Devon. Um, and going every day to help out Tom Jane edit the Oxford Companions food and talking about Patience Grey and eating food that Tom Jane and his wife cook. They're both absolutely fantastic cooks and he lives in this extraordinary house where he's built a bread oven and he make, he bakes bread in his old bread oven. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> and he makes his own hams and he, he raises his own pigs um, and he like... They make everything themselves. They're basically self-sufficient. It's, it's kind of what I want to do. Um, so, yeah. Mm. So I spent this extraordinary summer working with him. And we got on incredibly well. Um, he's really, really hilarious, funny character. Um, and, yeah, and that was, like, my story with Honey from a Weed. And we just talked about Patience Grey and the book and... It became, you know, it had already become a, a part of my life and then it became even more a part of my life and then it's followed me ever since. And I'm sure that like a lot of Bitter Honey, you know, a lot of where that came from was influenced by by Honey from a Weed, you know, the, the title as well. I like the fact that both of them have honey in the title. And I think, you know, Patience Grey had this kind of attraction to to nature and to um, kind of slightly wild places and Sardinia, 
you know like that's one of the things that i do love about sardinia is that it is you know relatively um undiscovered quite wild still quite kind of yeah just a slightly isolated uh, remote all of those things that i find quite appealing um and that i think patience grove is also drawn to which in itself inspires a sort of food culture and a way of cooking which is very connected to the land which is 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 everything that i kind of care about and but and believe in so just and a, and a sort of knowledge that that comes out of being you know being part of a landscape which is quite hostile because suddenly you know like that it gets really hot here um and mm. the landscape is quite barren you know for like the summer is can be quite it's quite hostile in many ways and i think that kind of wildness and hostility like breeds a kind of knowledge where you have to know what you can eat how you can eat it make the most of what of what you have you know when it's little how you can make do with what is little when it's a lot how you can use that and and make do with that and well in the title sort of fasting and feasting and that whole idea of whether you have everything or you have nothing you have to make do with it yeah. and you can find obviously the delicious things and she talks about the very very simple foods that you when you have literally nothing and you have to eat it can be amazing or on the flip side if you have you know plentiful amounts and you can eat well there as well exactly but i think it's you know that, that like that connection that connection to the land and that connection to you know the things like i think she, she talks about like i've written down the quote the kind of nature's providence and the way it can be so incredibly like um generous at certain times of year and then so frugal mm. of other and she says um which i thought was like what probably the best summary of cooking that i'd ever heard um you know like good cooking is the balance struck between frugality and liberality so it's like it's that balance between being incredibly generous and also being quite restrained and i think that's you know that's also mm. that's a reflection of of that contradiction in nature that it can be you know it can give so much but it can also give almost absolutely almost nothing for like certain times of year and exact that kind of stuff so i think yeah it's just i mean it's it's the book that captures like my philosophy about food better than anything so she's also so interesting isn't she because she i know that when it was in world war Two, and she was living outside like rural england and yeah. was sort of foraging and eating mushrooms because it was obviously like food was hard to come by so she was living in a forest yeah. with her two children yeah and then published her first book Plat de Jour mm -hmm. and she had like lived in London and wore many different hats and basically like ran away and what was the name of the house it was living like, in Castle Spigolizzi 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 that's Ma what it was Masseria Spigolizzi yeah I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right and the book came out when she was 70 and so she obviously goes you know goes away and lives in Spigolizzi and cooks lives cooks eats and also lives in all these other places where she's fasting or feasting and then you know publishes a book when she's obviously very old yeah um and it's amazing it's like this like truly lived masterpiece that comes out and then sort of you know i guess has, has lots of success maybe not you know financial success but lots of critical success once it releases by lots of chefs all over who talk about her mm. um but then doesn't you know doesn't take over does it doesn't it doesn't it's not she's not that known to many people no i think she, i mean she's it's one of those it's one of those books that i think if you ask like any chef that you admire probably all of them would say they'd read it or they've been influenced by it or they love it or 
But at the same time, if you ask anyone that's not really interested in food, no one would have heard of it. Whereas Elizabeth David, even if you're not necessarily a foodie, I hate that word, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, you, everybody's heard of Elizabeth David, but patients seems to be still a little bit more niche, I guess. And that's kind of part of what also makes it a bit special is that, you know, it's not necessarily somebody that, and I think she would have liked that. I, I get the sense that she didn't really want that many people to know about her. She was, you know, the, the same way that she was yeah. attracted to like wild places. She didn't want to be part of the kind of like scene. You know, she, I think she, she consciously avoided being a sort of a figure in the food world or the food writer, food writing world. And I think that's, you know, that's what makes it more um, authentic in a way is that she's so clearly not influenced by anything. You know, it's not, it's not English at all. Like it's, it's you know, I mean, it's, it's really in so many ways, you know, she talks about in the very beginning, she talks about how this book, it's so ironic that this book is written about people that will never read it because it's published in England, but actually it's the story of a whole different group of people who don't know anything, well, who don't, have never been to England. Across the Mediterranean. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, diff, you know, a very different way of life. And I think, hmm. I think to me, Elizabeth David feels like a tourist in a way still, you know, I mean, like, yes, she wrote about France and yes, she wrote about like Italy, but it, it doesn't feel like she really. She's English, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's, she's English. And, you know, she had a, a nice house in Chelsea, which she always came back to. And she didn't really live that life in the same way whereas patience like mm. was really part of that way of life and really lived it and and you know kind of turned her back on her her kind of heritage in a way and became very much part of the landscape that she talks about so there's an amazing because after when her husband died i think her son moved in to spigoletti and lived with her and originally she had no I don't, I'm sure you probably know this, but originally she had no running water and no electricity or refrigeration. And he put in a little fridge. And one day she was walking in the kitchen or something and said, you've ruined my house with a little fridge. <laughs> and then I think like five minutes later, then asked for an ice cube for her drink. <laughs> so like, yeah. <laughs> well, if I'm going to have a fridge, then you, you might as well give me some ice in my gin and tonic. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. I think she was. I think she was a difficult character. I'm sure she was a difficult mm. character, as many great, great writers, artists, chefs, whatever, many great creatives are. I'm sure she was a difficult character. I'm sure she was uncompromising, um, probably quite spiky. You know, like all those things which make her, for me, you know, even more interesting and appealing. And mm. um, but I think she had this she had this passion for authenticity, which I think is really rare. And, you know, I mean, now authentic has become a word that like, is so, is so hip, isn't it? Like everyone bandies it around, like, yeah, it's authentic. But like, mm. I think she really had a sense of what was authentic. And I think that comes through in the book. Um, and that makes it, you know, something that is truly like a masterpiece. So you've got another book coming out as well, don't you? Yeah, so my second book is coming out. Um, so I wanted to do, I mean, obviously, like I said, like I love making puddings as well, especially fruit-based puddings. Um, and I wanted to do a book that was kind of, I wrote it during lockdown, recipe tested it during lockdown. I wanted to do a book that was kind of celebratory. I think one of the things that I love about food is that it does have this 
capacity to make you feel happy and I think god it was depressing <laughs> this year and that was just you know for everybody I'm not saying for me but like I really wanted to write something that was kind of joyful and like captured the joyful element of sweet food um and in Italy obviously you know culture of breakfast is to have a sweet breakfast like cake for breakfast or biscuits or whatever it may be which I think it's such a nice, yeah, such a nice way to start the day, right? Um, and I've, and so it was kind of, yeah, it's it's like a collection of recipes, not 100% all 100% traditionally Italian, but there are some of the Italian classics. So I've got pastiera napolitana, which we used to make at the dock, so I like I knew about years ago, and I love. Um, and then I've got like cannoli and uh, cassata and like some of the Sicilian classics. I was supposed to go to Sicily as part of the research, but obviously COVID put pay to that. So uh, I had to just read about it rather than eating them in, in situ, which was a bit sad. But yeah, so there's some of the classics and there's some things that I sort of invented based on, you know, the ingredients that are available to me in Sardinia. So there's some nice kind of fruit inspired lots of figs because I live in a place where there's fig trees. So I was kind of experimenting quite a lot with figs. I've never, I mean, the figs here, like, I've never experienced figs like it. It's just extraordinary. Like, you can't keep up with them. Thanks for listening. You should buy both of Letitia's books and Honey from a Weed. They're essential. If you're listening on Spotify, follow. If on Apple, subscribe and leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And follow me on Instagram at the Cook's Library. Thanks again. Keep cooking and keep eating.